I think that's it. So we're ready to go. All right then, come with me please to Luke's Gospel, chapter 21. Gospel of Luke, 21st chapter. And we'll just read a couple of verses together. Just let me get myself a little water here first. And these are the words of Jesus in verse 25. Speaking about the end times before he comes. There will be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars. And on earth distress of nations with perplexity. That means seeing no way through. The sea and the waves roaring. Tsunamis, men's heart feeling them from fear and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth. If this is what we know is coming, what in the world is coming that we don't know, that we have no comprehension of? Where men's hearts will literally feel them for fear because of what's coming. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. And then in Matthew chapter 24. Verse 3, now as he sat at the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and at the end of the age? Jesus answered and said to them, take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Let's just stop there. Friday passed, the 11th of March 2011. We looked at our television screens, and what we saw was shock and awe. Our eyes has never seen such dramatic scenes ever before. We'd heard about tsunamis, seen much about earthquakes, but never saw it in such graphic detail, frightening, unbelievable almost. In Japan, is now devastated, crushed, broken-hearted. And it looks like their danger is not yet past. Their nuclear reactors, three of them are in trouble right now. And they are literally quaking in government because of these blow. Then what has happened now 
will pale into insignificance of what could possibly happen because of these nuclear reactors. Of course, we know that Japan is situated on the so-called Ring of Fire, that 25,000-mile ring around the rim of the Pacific Ocean, where all these great tectonic plates are moving. And you understand that these tectonic plates are massive slabs of the Earth's crust, anything between 5 and 30 miles deep, thousands of miles wide. They're all, maybe 12 or more of them, and they're all, as it were, seated on molten rock that is fluid. And therefore, they're moving continually, not very much. Often, they're only jostling against one another, maybe at a rate of an inch or two inches a year. But even that small amount, because of the mass that's involved, uh, generates such energy and power. And if it wasn't for a release valve, like a volcano once in a while, uh, then that releases some of this energy. And bad as a volcano is, often it's not as worse as an earthquake. And where they can't find release, and what we have seen in this situation where the two great Pacific plate and North American plate were pressing and pressing together on a fault line uh, and, and were finding no release, no valve to release. Something had to give and eventually something did go. People of Japan woke up on Friday morning, took their children to school, had their breakfast, went to their jobs, hung their washing on the line, watched Sunday time television, been doing it every day for years, not realizing that that day that their lives would never be the same again, that for many of them, their life would be no more, that before that afternoon was through, they would be gone into eternity. And we know about a quarter to three that afternoon, unbeknown to even all of the experts, nobody had a clue. Suddenly, these two great tectonic plates had to give and the Pacific plate slid underneath the great American, North American plate. In one second, suddenly that plate dropped 20 or 30 feet and in one second enough power and energy was released. More than 7 trillion tons of TNT, the equivalent, was released in one second. And that was the start of that gigantic earthquake, the biggest one that Japan has ever seen in recorded history. And it wasn't just the earthquake that did the damage, of course, it was the tsunami. Tsunami, by the way, it's a Japanese word, it just means harbor wave. And whenever that tectonic plate dropped suddenly, slid underneath that North, great North American plate, and the North American plate obviously rose up then there was a massive displacement of water that suddenly began to move, and as it began to move, it picked up speed until it was moving faster than a jumbo jet, over 500 miles an hour, <coughs> heading throughout the ocean. And of course, then when it gets to a landmass such as the eastern seaboard of Japan, in this case, then it began to lose velocity, and it slowed up to about 50 or 60 miles an hour. 
But what it lost in velocity, it gained in height and energy and power. And of course, it smashed into the coast. Not just a little bit of the coast, but hundreds and hundreds of kilometers of Japan's coastline were absolutely just devastated in a moment of time. Can you imagine a wall of water hundreds of kilometers long, as high as this building you're sitting in, when billions of tons going at 50, 60 miles an hour, crashing into buildings and into restaurants and houses and flats. It just took them like matchsticks. Nothing that man has ever devised could prevent the power of that thing. And it didn't stop until it was several kilometers inland. And trains and ships and trucks and buses were like little dinky toys swept away. And it looks like in one town, 10,000 people are missing and presumed dead. Perhaps will never be found. They reckon that hundreds of people, maybe thousands, were swept out to sea. Because this thing, when it comes in, then it sucks out. Found some things 15 miles, 15 kilometers out into the sea. The sea and the waves roaring. I think when the Son of God mentioned that, I, 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 there's no question in my mind that they had these things in mind. He could see into the future. And today we're seeing it with our very eyes. 2,000 years of prophetic promises are happening. We see it on our TV screens. Over this past 11 years, since 2001, there's been 15 natural disasters, including this one on Friday, which has now claimed the lives of about a million people. Sometimes hundreds of thousands of people at one time. Haiti was 300,000 people. The Boxing Day tsunami, 26th December 2004, claimed over a quarter of a million people. Millions are homeless. And on and on and on you could go. And that's only within just over a decade. And these are just the beginning of sorrows. These will dramatically increase in frequency and in magnitude. So these are very difficult days. I was reading in the paper just yesterday in the Daily Mail. I'm just going to read you just a little portion of this. There's a writer called Robert Hardman. And his banner headlines is, What fools we are to think we can tame the wrath of nature. Now, this is not a Christian man. I don't even think he's a religious man. I don't even know if he believes in God or not. Uh, you'll see that when you see the tenor of how he starts the report. But he makes a very valid and interesting point. He says, how we chuckle at those primitive civilizations with their sun-worshipping superstitions, their sacrifices and their pagan ways. How we poo-poo those creationist Bible bashers clinging steadfastly to their crackpot beliefs in Noah and his ark. The only real threat to the world, we're always told, is the human race itself because we're the ones in charge. We reclaim land from the oceans and build sea walls to keep those irksome waves at bay. We design even larger ships to heave even more unnecessary consumer goods around the planet. 
We built ever larger airports to accommodate the insatiable appetite for easy travel. We plant preposterous skyscrapers on a patch of land which for the last million years has accommodated little more than a few animals and a few birds in a spot of vegetation. We tweak the genes of other species to suit ourselves. We take great pride in our capacity both to protect and to overcome nature. And then suddenly we wake up and realize that nature is deeply unimpressed. We are in fact totally, hopelessly irrelevant after all, dwarfed by phenomena irredeemably beyond our own control. What's more, unlike the average storm or volcano or asteroid, yesterday's Japanese earthquake and subsequent tsunami was an episode which the finest brains had been completely unable to predict. Of the most advanced nations on earth, one of the most advanced nations on earth was innocently going suddenly, innocently going about its nature when nature suddenly decided to go thwack, (laughs) a great big thwack. But if all our collective scientific and technological brilliance served one purpose yesterday, it was to show us what a tsunami really looks like. Here was the first, I think this is a great line, here was the first all-conquering intercontinental aquatic bulldozer ever seen live and in daylight. It has served as a brutal lesson that in the scheme of things, Homo sapiens is not so much sapiens after all, we're just ants with cars, and on he goes. There's a secular writer who perhaps doesn't even believe in God, I'm not sure, but even he is saying, listen, we cannot control everything, and in one split second, everything can change, and millions of lives are changed overnight. Now, when things like this happen, it gets the world's attention. And inevitably, and always, the question will arise, where was God? Why did God allow this to happen? Had He no power to prevent it? And if He had the power to prevent it, why didn't He? If there is a God, how could He be so cruel to allow orphanages and schools and hospitals, innocent people to be swept away to their deaths in an instant? World leaders, particularly religious world leaders, have no answer. Shrug their shoulders, shake their head, wring their hands but offer no answers. Do we have answers tonight? Has the Bible got any answers? Does the Bible say anything about this? Have we any hope? Does this diminish our faith in God? Does it lessen it or does it increase it? Because there's going to be some people and it will diminish their faith in God. There's other people who will look up. There's people who maybe go to church for the first time. After 9-11 in America, the churches in New York were bound to capacity because people saw the fragility of life and that mortality is just a breath away. But what about us? What do we think? 
Is God to blame for all of this? Is man to blame for all? Is it simply the law of sowing and reaping? All this pain, suffering, disaster, and hurt? Does God always reward the faithful and punish the evildoer in this life? Is God capricious? Does He inflict pain and suffering at will, on a whim, when He feels like it? Now, although we're talking tonight mainly about natural disasters and perhaps national disasters, maybe even global disasters, but the same principle applies to personal disasters. When something unexpected, seemingly cruel, unfair, and unjust happens to us, do we not ask the same questions? Why? Why? Why do these things happen? It's an age-old question. It's a recurring question. It's a question that haunts mankind. We would desperately love to live in a world that is pain-free, disasterless, trouble-free. But alas, that's only utopia. It doesn't exist. As long as we're in this world, these things are going to happen. There's going to be pain. There's going to be suffering. Innocent people will die. Disasters will happen. Now, not all pain is bad, by the way. Some pain is good. Good in that it's an early warning system. A pain in your body is like an early warning system that something's wrong, isn't it? Usually before there's a heart attack, usually, except if it's a very sudden massive one, usually there's a warning sign. There's the pain in the arm and Stroke, there's a signs for it. There's pains. Nobody tells us something's not right. Something's working against us. There's something in the body. There's a virus. There's a disease. There's something. So not all pain in itself is bad. Where does pain and suffering come from? Is it God? Is it the devil? Is it man? Is it simply natural causes? Is it a combination of all? Is there a purpose to it? Is it just all negative or can something good come out of it? Because these are, these are all kind of questions that thinking people at least wrestle with, wonder about. <coughs> Particularly when it comes to personal disasters, a divorce, a bankruptcy, a disease, loss of a child, stillborn birth, all these things that cause so much hurt and pain. So the question will always arise, why? Seems so unfair, doesn't it? Seems so unjust many times. Why doesn't God just simply prevent it? And you know, in these times, and especially when it's on national scales and a lot of people are suffering, innocent people, in these particular times, I think that Christianity, especially out of all the world's religions, it comes under the most pressure simply because we're the ones who say that God is good. 
that God is fair, that God is just, that God is merciful, that God is compassionate. And that is through back at us time and time again whenever a natural disaster happens. People say, well, where is your just and fair and compassionate and merciful God in the midst of all this? Can you answer that? Could you address that question? Because I think that we need to be able to address it to thinking people. Well, there's going to be some people who throw that at us and they could care less what you think or what you say. Their mind's made up. But there's other people and it's genuine. They want to know. So we need to address these questions. So first of all, let me just speak a moment or two about the free will that we as human beings have got. Because man is very quick to simply blame God. Especially those that I have always found who has no time for him at all. Isn't that amazing? See, man says, well, we don't want God in politics. As one famous spin doctor said, we don't do God in Britain. <laughs> and we don't want God in Parliament. And we don't want to open in prayer. And we don't want prayer in the council chambers anymore. And in fact, if we could, we would get God out of our schools. Uh, and, you know, we, we just don't want God. We don't want Him on television. We don't want Him on the radio except to ridicule and to mock. But we really don't want God. And so we cut all the religious programming down to some little fluffy, little airy-fairy thing that means nothing to anybody. And we don't want God involved in our morality. We don't want God involved in our marriages and our children's lives. We have no time for church and for faith and for prayer and for the Bible and the Ten Commandments. That's stuff of the dark ages. We're enlightened people today. We're a technological people today. We don't want any of that stuff, all those fairy stories that foolish people believe in. And they'll trot all of that stuff out until something happens. And then they'll say, where was God? I'm sure you didn't want him in the first place. What do you care? You don't have time for him in your life. I remember years ago burying somebody who would not set foot in the church door. No time for God. No time for the things of God. And the family told me his wife was very angry with God. And I says, well, why would that be? Well, this was a good man and, 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 and God took him in the prime of life. And I said, hold a minute. I'm usually very, very careful about what I say when people's grieving, but this was the family side of it. It wasn't to the man's dear wife. I said, hold a minute. Is it not true that neither of them had any time for God or the things of God or church or anything like that? Is it not true that they never, ever went to church? So why would they be upset now about God? But that's the world, isn't it? That's what they do. That's how they act. But God has given a man a free will. And man can say, God, I don't want you in my life. I don't want you in my business. I don't want you in my family. I don't want you in my children's life. I don't want you in my marriage. I don't want you in my government. I want you. Fine. Okay. But then when things go wrong, don't blame God. Don't blame God. 
Now, isn't it also interesting that the Bible makes it very, very clear indeed for those who want to see it that pain and suffering was never part of God's original plan for this earth. That wasn't His original plan. The first two chapters of Genesis, you not find pain and suffering and disaster. And in the last two chapters of the Bible, you'll find pain and suffering and disaster. The only part you'll find is that intervening period from Genesis 3 where the devil and sin comes in and Revelation 20 where the devil and sin is forever dealt with. It's in that long generations between those two. That's where disaster comes and pain and suffering and sickness and disease and hurricanes and earthquakes and all that stuff that goes with it. Because sin produced all of that. Sin produced all of that. That's when sin and Satan ruled. That's when man fell. That's when man disobeyed God's command and shook his fist at God. And the very physical earth was changed. Genesis 3 and 19. Listen to what it says in Genesis 3 19. After the fall. I'll read from verse... Well, I'll read from verse 17. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife, have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat, it all, eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. For you shall eat the herb of the field, and in the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground, from out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Ever since sin and Satan and man's rebellion against God and the fall happened in the garden, suddenly, for the first time, man had to battle against the elements. And he's still battling against the elements today. And guess what? The elements are winning. It's an uneven fight, isn't it? As we just found out on Friday in Japan. So what about these great tectonic plates? I wonder, is this what it means partly in Romans chapter 8? Writing, he says in verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us, for the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly awaits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans with labor, with labors, with pang, birth pangs, together until now. Paul said that this whole natural world, this fallen natural world that fell in the Garden of Eden under Adam's sin, he said God subjected it and hope. What was the hope? 
The hope was the sons of God, that Christ would raise up men and women as his sons. And one day our redemption will be complete. By the way, your physical body is not redeemed yet. We're waiting for a new body, aren't we? And Paul says the whole natural world is groaning and creaking, waiting for its redemption. And its redemption will not be complete to our redemption is completed. The Bible says there will be new heavens and a new earth. I was watching last week, last Sunday night after home from church, Professor Cox, that great, young, charismatic, good-looking, brilliant communicator who's taken this series about the universe and all the rest. Let me tell you, most of it's a lot of rubbish. Unscriptural, unbiblical, evolutionary, atheistic, mechanistic. It was the most dullest, awful program I have listened to in years. Absolutely zero hope in it. He talked about when the very last star goes out. He's talking about the law of entropy, the law, second law of thermodynamics, how everything left by itself decays and rots. Well, we know that that is a law. And he says that will proceed and accelerate and go on and go on and go on until the very last star dies. Well, it doesn't tell us that in the Bible at all. It says there'll be new heavens and new earth. There's no hope in that. If I was an unbeliever sitting watching that, I would say, what's the point? Why am I living? What is the point of life on this earth at all? And that's what that's designed to do, by the way. It's to make you feel there's just no point in this life. There's no purpose to it. There's no design to it. There's no reason for creation. That's, that's the length and breadth of it right there. But the Apostle Paul says that this fallen world with its second law of thermodynamics and its law of entropy, it's all waiting and waiting and waiting until we are finally redeemed. And then there will be a new heavens and a new earth. And then this old world will be redeemed. And it will be made pristine. <laughs> That's a good word, isn't it? Pristine. It'll be beautiful. It'll be wonderful. And there'll be new heavens and new earth. And the great new Jerusalem will come down <laughs> and will come down upon this earth. There's hope in that, isn't there? I'm glad I'm a believer tonight. I'm glad I've read this book. Because if I hadn't read this book, I'd have absolutely zero hope. I'd have no hope. I'd have no reason to live in this life. Short enough as it is. Thank God there's eternity ahead of us. So initially and ultimately, sin was the cause of all suffering and pain. It's the direct result of man's rebellion against a holy God. And that will continue right to the very last day at the Battle of Armageddon. You'd think man would learn lessons shaking his fist at God, wouldn't you? But we never do, do we? You say, well, could God not have prevented all of that stuff in the garden? Could he not have just stopped that and saved all of the heartache and all of the suffering? No, I suppose he could if he hadn't given Adam and Eve free will. If he wanted them to be robots and automatons. But he wanted them to decide, for them to have the choice. And he gives you and he gives me a choice. He's not going to force us to follow him. He's not going to make us, he's not going to twist our arm up our back. 
we got that choice. Of course, much of suffering today is caused by man's own sin, isn't it? I mean, God has put certain fixed laws within this universe. Laws of gravity, physics, chemistry, so forth. And all these laws are good. If we obey them, they'll bless us. But we, do we do that? No, we pervert those laws. The same brilliant mind that can come up with an answer to smallpox is the same brilliant mind that can make a weapon out of anthrax. Same doctor that can save a little baby's life in the womb is the same doctor who can kill that little life in the womb. The same nation that gave us such wonderful composers like Mozart and Bach and Mendelssohn is the same nation who gave us Belson and Auschwitz and Ravensbrück. What about the moral laws that God has given us to help us with our own lives, personally with our families, with our relationships, with those around us and we work with and we live beside? What about our bodies? We can abuse them, certainly, can't we? Fill them full of drugs and other compulsive and obsessive stuff that wants to destroy us. We can do all of that. And so we harm ourselves, don't we? Nothing to do with God. A lot of it. And sometimes the suffering is not because of us, it's because of other people, isn't it? One time Jesus, they brought it in John 9, they brought a blind man to him and says, Who did sin, this man or his servants, that he should be born blind? And Jesus said, Neither. Neither this man or his parents. It's not that they never sinned, but what he was saying was it didn't cause him to be born blind. He was born blind. Result in the fall. But he went and healed him, didn't he? And so sometimes it's just nature, sometimes it's our own fault, but sometimes it's other people's fault, isn't it? The innocent suffer because of the greed of others. <laughs> the investment bankers, over this past couple of years, they have caused a global recession. People's now having to work longer for less money. That's not a happy thought. Sure, it's not clever. Especially you get near retiring age. You think, well, I've worked long enough. I can just put my feet up. Uh-uh. Not anymore. You can't. But of course, the big fat cats, the investment bankers, they'll put their feet up. They've got their yachts. They've got their big pensions <laughs> of a million and more. And so, millions of people are suffering because of the few innocently. There's lots of suffering in this world. It has absolutely nothing to do with God at all. Never had. People suffer because of adultery, anger, jealousy, slander, stealing, hatred. That's the reasons why people suffer. What about the world's starving millions? 
And there's a motive subject, isn't it? What about all those millions in Africa and India and all over there starving? They have no, nothing to eat and they've nothing to drink. What about all of that? You think that's got to do with God? Oh, by the way, there are times, because the book of Revelation talks about it, when God can and does punish nations. But lots of times, none to do with God. Mismanagement, war, bad planning, <laughs> landslides in the Philippines. You know why? Illegal logging. Big companies come in and they clean the mountainside. People's living there in their little huts. There's no trees to stop the rainwater coming down. What happens? Great big floods come and wipe all those poor people away. It's nothing to do with God. It's to do with the greed and the mismanagement of men, isn't it? What about all those children starving out there? Hmm? Well, sometimes it's natural causes, but other times the world sends in aid to help them. Where does it go? It sits at the docks. People never even get it. Most of the aid that goes into all these areas, it never gets as far as the docks. That's the biggest major problem, as far as it ever gets. Sometimes it may be one mile in, but what about the people 10 miles out? They're just starved to death. Who cares? Zimbabwe used to be one of the richest nations in Africa. It's one of the poorest today, except for the president who lives a palatial lifestyle while his people are starving. Has that got to do with God? See what I'm saying? And so, in this world of suffering and pain and disaster and all of this, you've got to think about it, you've got to look at it, you've got to ask yourself some questions. Now, without doubt, there are times when God will judge a nation. You read through the book of Revelation, there's a lot of judgments coming on this earth. And I have no doubt there's times, even at this very moment, when on a national scale, listen, if Britain is not soon judged, I don't know. Britain is ripe for judgment. And maybe it's only the prayers of God's people is keeping it at bay. If ever a nation has sunk if ever a nation has sunk in morality, integrity, and every way you can think, if ever a nation has shook its fist at God, if ever a nation says, God, we don't want you, it's our nation in Britain. I thought when this new government would come in, I thought the leader was going to be a man of integrity. I thought he was going to be a man of morality. Sorry to say, I'm not saying much of it. Recently he told, and you know business saying this, by the way, a couple, a black couple, a Pentecostal couple was denied fostership of children because they believed that homosexuality was wrong, was against the Bible, and they were denied being foster parents. And our prime minister said, rightly so. He said they should be more broad-minded. <laughs> Makes you shake your head in disbelief. No wonder Britain's gone down the tubes when people come out with statements like that. One woman who was high up in the whole fostering sector in the government, it was leaked out. Here's what she said. I don't want children to be infected with Christian morality. 
as if it was a disease. <laughs> Can you believe that? Infect it with Christian morality. And we wonder why Britain's in the state it's in today. God help us. Now, Jesus said that all these are the beginnings of sorrows. I haven't even begun to even speak about the signs in the heavens because I'm not even sure what they're going to be. I have a very keen interest in astronomy, as most of you know. I think this is the greatest time in the history of the world to be an astronomer because <laughs> we're going to see God's signs in the heavens. I wonder how they explain them. Can't even explain the Star of Bethlehem. Every Christmas it comes up and they talk the biggest load of nonsense you ever heard about the Star of Bethlehem. What are they going to do when these great signs are in the heavens? Well, men's hearts will fail them for fear of the things that are coming upon the earth. What's that going to be? Aren't you glad you're saved tonight? <laughs> I wouldn't like to be an unbeliever looking up to the heavens and wondering what in the world's coming next. Does God understand pain? Does He understand suffering? Does He know what it's like? I'm going to end this just in a moment because I'm not finished with the subject. I'm probably going to have to revisit this again because I never really got into some of the things I wanted to say But just because of time. But does God feel suffering? Does He feel pain? Does He understand the world that we live in? Somebody wrote a poem a few years ago called The Long Silence. don't know who it was. Let me just read it to you. At the end of time, billions of people were seated on a great plain before God's throne. Most shrank back from the brilliant light before them. But some groups near the front talked heatedly. Not cringing and cringing, not with cringing, cringing shame, but with belligerence. Belligerence. Can God judge us? How can He know about suffering? Snapped a young pert, young blonde brunette, young pert brunette, sorry. She ripped open the sleeve to reveal a tattooed number from a Nazi concentration camp. We endured terror, beatings, torture, and death. In another group, a Negro boy lowered his collar. What about this, he demanded, showing an ugly rope burn, lynched for no crime but being black. In other crowd, there was a pregnant schoolgirl with sullen eyes. Why should I suffer, she murmured. It wasn't my fault. Far out across the plain were hundreds of such groups. Each had a complaint against God for all the evil and suffering He had permitted in this world. How lucky God was to live in heaven where all was sweetness and light. There was no weeping or fear nor hunger nor hatred. What did God know of all that man had been forced to endure in this world? For God leads a pretty shuttered life, they said. So each of these groups sent forth their leader, chosen because he had suffered the most, a Jew, a Negro, a person from Hiroshima, a horribly deformed Artrithic, a thalamidomide child, and in the center of this vast plain they consulted with each other. At last they were ready to present their case. It was rather clever. Before God could be qualified to be their judge, He must endure what they had endured. Their decision was that God should be sentenced to live on earth as a man. Let Him be born a Jew. Let the legitimacy of His birth be doubted. Give him work so difficult that even his family will think him out of his mind. Let him be betrayed by his closest friends. Let him face false charges, be tried by a prejudiced jury, and be convicted by a cowardly judge. Let him be tortured. 
And at the last, let him see what it means to be terribly alone. Let him die so there can be no doubt he died. Let there be a great host of witnesses to verify it. As each leader announced his portion of the sentence, loud murmurs of approval went up from the throng of people assembled. When the last had finished announcing sentence, there was a long silence. No one uttered a word. No one moved. For suddenly, all knew that God had already served his sentence. God knows about the suffering of this world. He knows what's coming. And that's why he sends gospel preachers and people to testify and to witness about his son before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Because before the Lord comes back, it's going to get worse. The church will shine brighter than an ever-increasing darker world. And do you know what? Every genuine believer is going to stand in the light. There'll be no hiding place for the true believers. We'll be the ones the fingers will be pointed at. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 24, and we didn't read it all. He says, they will persecute you. He says, you'll even be betrayed by family members. You'll be hated of all nations for my name's sake. I'm going to come back to this subject very shortly. There's other things I need to say about it that I haven't time to say tonight. But just enough to let you know that we're living in very dark and dangerous days. If ever we need it, Christ, it's today. If ever we need it, salvation, it's today. If ever we need it to proclaim our witness, it's today. If ever we need it to let our light shine, it's today, isn't it, friends? It's today. Because the night comes when no man can work, Jesus said. It's today while there's still light. And so when some of your friends or some of your workmates or some of your schoolmates or some of your school teachers, if they come on their angry attitude and bitterness against God, take them to some of those scriptures and remind them, remind them that God sent His Son to suffer in this cruel world. Everybody says, well, why doesn't God do away with this? And why doesn't He do away with that? Why doesn't He deal with this? Why doesn't He deal with that? Why doesn't He deal with you? Why doesn't He deal with me? You say to, are you willing to let him deal with your wrongs? You let him to deal with your sins? Because <laughs> it starts here, doesn't it? It starts with us. Let's just close our eyes a moment. Lord, you said in Matthew 24 that even those he's at the beginning of sorrows, and even though there'll be wars and rumors of wars, nation would rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. But Lord, you said, see that you be not troubled. So Lord, our business is not to be troubled in the sense that we're to be fearful and anxious and afraid, but Lord, that we're to shine brighter as a testimony and a witness. And that we should be able, Lord, according to your word, to be able to give a witness through your word to the signs of the end of the times. 
So Lord, would you help us do that tonight? Would you help us even in conversation with others? Especially at a time like this when people are wondering and questioning and blaming. But Lord, that we have something to answer the complaint with. That we can show them who God really is. That God so loved this world that he did give his only begotten son. That's how much he loves this world. And so, Lord, we look into your word and we keep our eyes, Lord, peeled for the signs of the times that we're living in. And then we say, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Lord, we have read the end of the book. And, Lord, we win. Because we're on your side. And you have already won the battle. And we thank you for it. So Lord, we do not know what tomorrow holds, but we know who holds tomorrow. And we thank you, Lord, that tomorrow is in your hands. And we look to you. So we're not going to be fearful and afraid. We're not going to not sleep in our bed at nights. We're going to trust the Lord and we're going to say, Lord, you've got all things under your control. These are the signs of the times. You promised them. You prophesied them. They're happening before our very eyes. We look up for redemption is drawing nigh. And we give you thanks and we praise you for who you are. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.